Newell Brands is a consumer-facing conglomerate. They own Ball Jars and Sharpie and Mr. Coffee. And if Newell Brands decided to buy Papermate or some other pen company, the Wall Street Journal probably wouldn't write an article about it. In fact, they do own Papermate and a bunch of other pen companies. Here's the thing. Last year, Newell Brands' sales were more than twice the size of Penguin Random House, or as I call them, Random Penguin. And yet, when Bertelsmann, the people who own Random Penguin, decide to buy Simon & Schuster, it's news. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about publishing, commodities, monopolies, and culture. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. If you're part of the group of advertising, marketing, or PR professionals who follow this podcast, you might not want to miss my keynote for the Sharp Spring Agency Acceleration Series. Join me on December 10th at 12 p.m. Eastern for a live Q&A about the future of agencies. Sign up at sharpspring.com slash godin. The sessions are free and sponsored by SharpSpring. They're a revenue growth platform with sales and marketing automation tools that help agencies grow. Again, that URL is sharpspring.com slash Godin. Hope to see you there. It's a rainy day here in Hastings on Hudson, New York, but that didn't stop me from making this podcast. I want to talk a little bit about our culture and the consolidation of the book business. Why is it news if a huge book publisher, the biggest in America, buys another big book publisher from a different conglomerate. What has shifted in the world that makes this matter or not matter? Well, let's begin with this. Book publishers have been running an industry for over 100 years, and the structure of the industry is based on a few facts. The first one is that books are returnable, completely returnable. The bookstore can keep a book for months or over a year, and if it doesn't sell, they can send it back. They've made it ever easier for them to do that. They don't even have to send the book back in many cases. They can just scan in the code, and it's an honor system. Why would book publishers have such a ridiculous policy? They do it because the booksellers had a lot of power. They had a lot of power because there's a scarce amount of shelf space. There's only room for 20, 30, 50,000 books in a bookstore, and there are hundreds of thousands of books trying to get in there. So what the publishers realized a really long time ago is that their customer is not the reader. Their customer is the bookstore. That's why you will not find Random House's phone number on any of the books on your shelf, because they don't want you to call them. They don't want to hear from you at all. On the other hand, their sales force knows by name every buyer at every bookstore that sells a lot of books that they have organized the entire industry around making booksellers happy. They have a long lead time. They had salespeople who would go from store to store. They try to publish books that booksellers want to publish. But, you've already figured out the but, one by one, independent booksellers are under stress or are disappearing, and it's all going to one company, 
one company, Amazon, that doesn't really care about books. Amazon has built an institution that is good at selling everything, but has no ability to sell anything. What do I mean by that? Well, most retailers have merchants. Merchants are human beings who make decisions, who have taste, who decide what's going to be in the front of the store and what's not. Merchants are the people who determine that Pottery Barn feels different than Macy's because they have put their point of view on display. And merchants had a lot of power at booksellers. That's because the books that got promoted ended up getting sold. That one example of this is the work that Jean Fywell did with her team at Scholastic. They took a big risk when they acquired Harry Potter in the United States, and Harry Potter ended up being the most profitable book franchise in history because independent booksellers went out of their way to get precocious 10-year-olds to read this new book from this unknown author. Hand-selling, it's called. And this mindset that booksellers helped publishers adopt is a mindset that publishers brought to Amazon. Let's put our best salespeople on Amazon. Let's figure out how to get Amazon excited about what we're launching next. Let's do all sorts of favors for Amazon because we know that Amazon will like that and then Amazon will promote what we do. But the thing is, Amazon doesn't do that. Amazon is simply an engine, an algorithm. It listens to what the market wants in the short run and it gives it to the market. Amazon doesn't buy 10,000 or 50,000 copies of a new book. They buy a three-day supply, a five-day supply. If it sells, they buy more. If it doesn't sell, they don't buy more. The people who work at Amazon don't have the levers to change things the way the people at other stores did. Years ago, I retained the rights to the audio CD of my book, The Dip. I read it myself, and I published it myself. I then made one call to somebody I knew at Barnes & Noble, and I said to them, Let's do this. I'll give you an extra big discount. You'll put it in a big table near the cash register. It's final sale. We'll do one big batch. No reorders. Let's go. And we ended up selling tens and tens and tens of thousands of copies of a CD for not very much money. Barnes & Noble knew it was a good deal for their readers because it was so inexpensive. I knew that I could lay off the risk, and I knew that Barnes & Noble, through promotion, would sell them all. So back to this idea of consolidation. What is publishing? Publishing is the hard work of bringing a new idea to people who want to pay for it. Publishing is not printing. The logistics of printing are now available to anyone. Sure, it takes a little bit of time and some money, but you're not going to get outprinted by Simon & Schuster, Random House, or Penguin. You can figure that out. The hard part is to take a new idea and to figure out how to put that idea in front of people who want to buy it. And so the old model was partner with the bookstore and then the bookstore will talk to people who just walked in to buy a book, which is the juiciest pond filled with fish for someone who is looking to catch a fish. They're already in the bookstore asking, what's new? What should I read? That's not the way it works at Amazon. So now the question is, 
is it in our interest for publishers to consolidate? Alert listeners know that I am no fan of monopoly, that once we start taking choices away, once we let producers off the hook, they gain too much power, that instead of asking what's good for our customers, they start asking what's good for us, because they can. And so, ideally, what would be great for our culture, for people who want to write, and for people who want to read, is lots and lots of publishers on equal footing, bidding against each other with lots and lots of authors seeking to serve them, and then lots and lots of sellers, perhaps 10, 20 sellers on the internet, playing under fair conditions, all selling to compete with one another. That is sort of an idealized free market scenario. But there's a network effect, and there's lock-in. Now, once you own a Kindle, you're going to buy your books on Amazon. Once you're an Audible listener, you're going to use your Audible credits to stick with Amazon. Once you're in Prime, it doesn't really pay for you to start looking at other places and pay shipping every single time. And it's easier to just stay where you are. It's more convenient. And Amazon has kept up its end of the bargain so far by offering unlimited selection and the best prices on books. So it's sort of ideal for the reader. You get the book tomorrow at the best price, any book you want, with free shipping. And if tomorrow isn't fast enough, you can do all of those things on Audible or Kindle right now. But what this means for the book publishers is that without their partner, the bookstore, without Amazon willing to be their partner, they have a challenge. Well, one thing the big publishers are doing is they're bidding against each other for ads and promotion on Amazon, because Amazon doesn't care who buys the ads and promotions. They sell them to the highest bidder. Well, if there are lots of bidders, that's good for Amazon, bad for the bidders. So one of the big advantages of consolidating the big publishers is they won't bid against each other on promotion. But one of the risks that authors are happy to point out is one of the advantages of consolidating if you're the publisher or the shareholders of Bertelsmann is you don't have to bid to buy books from authors either. That if an author only has one place to sell his or her book, well then a dollar is the best bid they're going to get because take it or leave it. There's no place else to go unless you want to publish it yourself. And so the consolidated publisher will seek eventually to not overpay for the Starbucks. Now they've acknowledged so far that that's not what they're going to do. They're going to treat each one of their imprints as a separate independent entity and encourage them to bid against each other for the Starbucks. We will see if that continues. Number two, they can get more efficient at buying shelf space and promotion. As I mentioned, they shouldn't be bidding against each other to promote a book. That forming a cartel that works together to lower Amazon's upside will help readers and authors because it will leave more resources for things that are actually productive. Bidding up the price of attention doesn't help the reader. And lastly, the biggest shift, the thing that they're going to have to do, that they're doing slowly, but it's starting to work, is permission marketing. That I first wrote about this for the book industry more than 25 years ago. 
I sat down with people at Perigee, which is now a division of this giant corporation, and I said, you don't know who your readers are, and there's a race to see who does. And it turns out Amazon won that race. It turns out Amazon knows who all the readers are. They know what those readers want. They know what those readers like. And if the book publishers don't engage in that race, they will never, ever have a chance of catching up. But once they do know who you are and what you want, they can cater to you. The same way they used to cater to booksellers, now they need to start learning to cater to book readers to earn the privilege of delivering anticipated, personal, and relevant messages to readers who want to get them, to connect readers to one another. They're capable of doing it in a way that will run circles around Amazon if they choose to, because it's this intent and interest and openness to news that enables a book publisher to redefine what they do. They're not in the business of cutting down trees. They're not in the business of printing books. None of them print their own books. They're in the business of organizing readers, of being a channel between the author who has something to say and the reader who wants to hear what that author has to say. But this is going to require a significant shift in how they see the world. So the question is, will a consolidated company, one that creates a balance with a consolidated seller, that new entity, will they be willing to rebuild their business model at the same time they are trying to run their existing business? Because Newell Brands knows that people are going to keep buying Sharpies, and they hope that people will keep buying Mr. Coffee and Ball Jars. And they are succeeding not by changing our culture, but by creating a brand that people trust. But book publishing isn't like that because nobody knows who publishes my book and nobody knows who publishes any of their favorite authors. What we care about are the people like us who are reading books like we are reading and what we want is to be connected to them. Thanks for listening to my rant and I still think they should call the company Random Penguins. You should write romance novels. You know what your problem is? You're not proud to be a penguin. Proud to be a penguin. Why are we even called penguins? What does it even mean? It's a great name for us. It's not so on the nose. What would you rather be, a ram? You know why they're called rams? At least they're more mobile than us. We can't do anything. I'd rather be a sea lion than a penguin. You know how many sea lions die young from too much smoking and drinking? Trust me, we're not missing out on anything. We age better than almost any animal on the planet. You're right, Jimmy. I haven't been appreciative enough. Now you're getting it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some answers from questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... 
And that completes my question. Got four great questions to dive into here as we approach the end of the year. If you've got a question about this or any other episode, I hope you'll take a minute to ask it. Just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is Reed talking to you from Denver, Colorado. I've been catching up on my Akimbo backlog recently, and I just got to your Zoom Revolution episode from October. Um, Your 18 points really resonated with me, but it brought up a question that um, I ask a lot of my friends when they start to rant about Zoom calls just being a worse version of meetings. So how do individuals like them, who are generally younger or less tenured people in their organizations, change that culture of of meetings, Um, especially when it's driven by more senior individuals who are unwilling or unable to shift away from what they know? I'm excited to share any suggestions you might have with them. Thanks for your work. I'm looking forward to listening through all the new episodes. Thanks for starting us off, Reed. Here is the confusion. There is a difference between people changing things and letting you off the hook versus taking action, taking responsibility, giving away credit, and watching the world change. In this case, Zoom is being misused. It's being misused by most organizations who are dealing with a loss of status and control. People are working from home, but they're worried that people aren't working. So they're using Zoom in the worst way, meetings as enforcement, meetings to make sure people are putting their butts in their seats, meetings to make sure you're behaving. These meetings are enervating. They are sucking the life out of us. We sit there all day when we could have gotten so much more done if we had just used an asynchronous method of communication, like a shared doc or Slack. So what to do about it? Well, the Young Turks, the whippersnappers, the people who see a better way forward should have their own meetings. Peer-to-peer, start using it properly. Engage with one another in a productive way that gets enormous amounts done in very short periods of time. And then, when the boss finds out, give them credit. Let them steal what you just built. The world will change, but just as it changed for email, just as it changed for websites, just as it changed for diversity. It changes from people who are doing the work, not from the top down. Hi, Seth. It's Ross here from Cape Town. Um, I have a question about research. Um, So I've, in my career uh, at various stages, I've actually, my job title has been a researcher. Um, but I did a bachelor of arts degree and, and a master's in arts, but, um, throughout my school career, I was never actually taught what it meant to be a researcher or how to research properly. I always felt that I was missing a trick. So I'm very curious about your methods, um, whether it's a science thing, whether I should have been an engineer if I wanted to be a better researcher. Uh, if you had any any insight into the research process, I'd really be curious to hear about it. Thanks a lot. I love your work, and I'm going to read your new book. Okay, 
Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you, Ross. I'm flattered that you consider me a researcher. I am not much of a researcher at all. Let me argue that there are two things going on when you are doing research in the eyes of other people. The first one is statistics. Everyone should take a stats class. Everyone. If you vote, if you have a savings account, if you engage with the outside world, if you make decisions, you need to understand rudimentary statistics. That's just clear. But once you know stats, it's way easier to do actual research that has any sense of reality to it because stats help us focus on the data that matters and ignore the data that doesn't. But there's a second half of research, and this is part of what you're getting at. We need to do research in a way that our peers believe that the standards for research to get a vaccine approved are different than the standards of research if you're doing psychology experiments on freshmen, which are different than the standards of research if you're sharing anecdotes on a blog. The method needs to fit what people in your industry expect. So in many fields, you got to have a PhD or they don't count it. It doesn't matter if the research was done well. That's one of the signals that they're looking for. So I am no paragon of how to do research because I am upfront at telling people, I bring you anecdotes, I bring you vignettes, and you make your own decision. If it resonates with you, if it holds true to your experience with reality, great. But your mileage may vary. And I have never once said anything to the contrary. I have peers who are way better at research than I am. And if they say, I did the math and I can prove it's true, I often believe them because that level of research matches my understanding of what's needed in my industry and of stats. So go read, and I'll link to this in the show notes, the work that Ignaz Semmelweis did when he developed modern statistics. Millions and millions of women aren't dead because Semmelweis figured out how to do real research, not because he had a fancy degree, but because he understood how the world worked. Hi, Seth. Um, My name is Desiree, and I have been following your work for ever since I was taking marketing classes in college for years and years and years. Thank you for your work. Um, I just have had something on my mind, and I wanted to send you a voice memo with the small chance that you might respond to on your podcast. Um, I love the work that I do as a marketer. I feel like I have great instincts for it. I'm good at it. And I love the nonprofit organization I work for. It has this incredible mission, and I really identify with it. I feel honored to work for them. Um, but my struggle is that my immediate boss just works very different for me. Um, I've learned a lot from her and have appreciated our time together and just her different perspective. But I do find that I often feel deflated. Um, She has admitted that she's motivated by praise and adulation. And um, I just don't function that way. So I I often find in our discussions that she sees our place in the organization just very differently than what I do. And I often come away just feeling the opposite of motivated. Um, 
And I certainly have days where I'm able to like find my inner strength and connect with, um, you know, why I'm doing what I do that gets me through the day and I can feel great. But I often have days that I just feel pretty discouraged. So I would just love any words of advice you can offer me. Thanks for your work. Thank you, Desiree. And I'm thrilled to hear that your work is going well. And I'm sorry that sometimes you're feeling deflated. When I was growing up, when I was uh, nine or 10 years old, we used to take a shortcut to walk to school. That shortcut walked along a fence. And on the other side of that fence, I can visualize that fence right now, was a really angry German shepherd named Odin, which at the time I felt was the most evil name I could think of. And Odin hated me. Odin barked and snapped and did everything he could to get through that fence. Well, after a few months of taking the shortcut, I realized Odin didn't know me. Odin was just being Odin. And if I wanted to go on that walk, I had to walk by the fence, but I didn't have to take it personally. So like me, like you, your boss is a person. She knows what she knows. She believes what she believes. She wants what she wants. And it's different than what we know or believe or want. And if you're going to work with her, that has to be okay. If it's not okay, if it is completely using you up, don't work there. By all means, your day, your week, your month is too valuable to give up if you are taking it personally, if it is deflating you. But if you realize that she doesn't see what you see or doesn't want what you want, and that's okay, you've now figured out that you work with someone who you can manage as much as she is working to manage you. You've decoded what she needs. Now you have to decide if you're willing to bring that to work in exchange for all the other things you get that you do like. I hope that resonates, and either way, you're going to come out fine. Hi, Seth. This is Ryan Rhodes in Salem, Oregon. I've been really enjoying your new book, The Practice, and it has me thinking a lot about my latest book project. With so many crazy things that have happened so far in 2020, from the pandemic to wildfires and all the challenging issues the world is facing, it's been very difficult to focus, and it can seem like it's harder than ever before to stay present. All of us are feeling the stress of the moment in a lot of different ways, and it's definitely impacted my own creativity. My question is, how do you know when you genuinely need to step away from a book or any other creative project for at least a little while to regroup, rest, and not burn yourself out? versus when you're just stuck in your head and need to just grind through it. Put another way, how do you know when you're just making excuses versus when you're just in a dip that you need to work through? Thanks so much for all you do. It's really helped keep me going through some really challenging times. Thank you for this, Ryan. As we wrap up 2020, I think a whole bunch of people are feeling what you're talking about. It has been an exhausting slog. And not only that, but it has been evenly distributed in the sense that everyone's feeling it at the same time. Uneven in the sense that some people have had more resources to be able to work their way through it. Some people have been luckier when it comes to things like health and support. But yes, a lot of people are feeling it. And how do we know if it's a dip? How do we know if we just grind through a little bit further, we'll get to the other side? Versus how do we come to the conclusion that we're burnt out? and that maybe it's time to catch our breath. And the only advice I've got for you, because it's local in all situations, is this. Has anyone else been in your situation 
and gotten to the other side. And if they have, are they glad they did? So if you're stuck in organic chemistry on your way to getting into medical school, it's easy to look at the 485,000 doctors in America and say, all of them got through this to get to the other side. And all of them will tell you that you can get through organic chemistry to get to the other side. On the other hand, there are plenty of authors out there who will tell you that they have deleted entire books, books that took months or years of their life. I am one of them. And it's okay, because then they got to work on another one. Your particular book, your particular project, I don't know how to tell. But one thing I do know is we don't get tomorrow over again. And if you can spend a week or even a month not doing that thing that is using you up, it might be worth trying because you can always go back to it, but you can't get tomorrow over again. Thank you for listening. I hope you and yours are doing well as we close out this year. I'm feeling optimism creeping around the corner. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.